Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories. An interesting ruling out of Pennsylvania showing how the legalization of medical marijuana is impacting law enforcement's ability to perform warrantless searches of stopped vehicles. Ghislaine Maxwell, guilty. And a big win for the state of New York in a massive lawsuit against opioid manufacturers and distributors that New York's attorneys argued created a public nuisance by flooding the market with opioids. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. First, some criminal news, which I expect will be relatively rare on the show. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that the smell of marijuana detected by officers during a traffic stop is no longer per se probable cause to initiate a warrantless search of a vehicle. Here's some background. In Pennsylvania, cannabis has been recently legalized for medical purposes, though not recreationally. And this case, which is the Commonwealth versus Bar, docket number 28 MAP 2021, the court considered how much law enforcement can rely on the presence of the odor of marijuana alone to search a stop vehicle. Now, in this case, a bag of marijuana and a firearm were ultimately discovered in a vehicle after a search was initiated, after marijuana was smelled and detected by the officers. The driver was pulled over after rolling through a stop sign. The driver and the passenger of the vehicle did present the cops with a medical marijuana card indicating that they were per- permitted to possess some amount of marijuana pursuant to state law. Officers searched the vehicle anyways, finding 0.75 grams of marijuana in a bag with no medical identifiers on it, along with a handgun in the trunk. The defendant in this case was charged with both drug and firearm-related charges. At a pretrial hearing, the lower court held that the troopers lacked probable cause to conduct the search and granted a motion to suppress the evidence obtained via the search. With the lower court explicitly ruling, quote, the plain smell of burnt marijuana is no longer indicative of an illegal or criminal act, unquote. The lower court highlighted certain expert testimony that explained there's no difference in smell from legally obtained marijuana and illegally obtained marijuana, reasoning, therefore, that the smell in and of itself cannot be the sole probable cause sufficient for a warrantless search. So, The appellate court in Pennsylvania, it's the Superior Court, stated that while previously the plain smell of marijuana was a strong indicator of illegality, quote, the strength of the inference of illegality stemming from the odor of marijuana has necessarily been diminished by the MMA. And in Pennsylvania, that's the Medical Marijuana Act, unquote. So going further, the question then became whether the presence of marijuana could be a factor at all in the probable cause analysis. And there's a long discussion of Pennsylvania criminal statutes and prior rulings, of course, but ultimately the PA Supreme Court found that the warrantless search in this case was based solely on the presence of the smell of marijuana. There's also a good discussion in the opinion about how the effects on probable cause and other criminal issues were not expressly contemplated by the passage of the Medical Marijuana Act in Pennsylvania, but that logically, since marijuana is legal in some circumstances in Pennsylvania, it cannot be a per se indicator of criminal activity in all circumstances. So regarding the sufficiency of that factor for probable cause, the court held, quote, The odor of marijuana alone does not amount to probable cause to conduct a warrantless search of a vehicle, but rather may be considered as a factor in examining the totality of the circumstances, unquote. So now in Pennsylvania, where cannabis is legal for medical purposes, but not for recreational purposes, 
The rule now seems to be that the presence of cannabis odor alone is not enough to get your car searched. And stepping back from this case now, 36 states in the United States have passed some form of medical marijuana laws that would allow for it without a prescription. 18 allow it recreationally. 13 have decriminalized it. This case illustrates that for what I'll call hybrid states like Pennsylvania, where it is legal for medical purposes only, the legalization of marijuana, even for medical purposes, can have downstream effects on law enforcement at large. In this case, the firearm charge was dismissed because of it. And I mean, how many automobile searches over the years have been predicated upon an officer's report of a smell of marijuana? I would speculate here and say probably a lot. It seems to me that with rulings like this happening in New Jersey and in New York and now Pennsylvania, law enforcement's ability to perform warrantless searches could be overall severely diminished. Put another way, if the state passes a law allowing only for the use of marijuana medicinally, the downstream effects of that could still, if the rule in Pennsylvania were to be applied universally, diminish the amount of warrantless searches overall. going to try to hit a few interesting stories quickly in this space rather than spending more time on them, partially due to the fact that I am writing at least some of this from an airport while I'm waiting for my delayed flight. Remember that Colorado trucking case we talked about last week where the driver was sentenced to do four sequential terms totaling 110 years? Well, after getting a guilty verdict and successfully throwing every book in the law library at the defendant, the prosecutor, District Attorney Alexis King, from Colorado actually went back and sought to reduce the sentence to the 20 to 30 year range, according to a Reuters report. However, Colorado Governor Jared Polis commuted the sentence to only 10 years, and the defendant would be eligible for parole in five years. No specific word was given as to why the prosecutors and governors so quickly sought to overturn a conviction that they previously were touting as a major victory. But one could speculate that the threatened boycotts and strikes of the truck drivers and logistics workers in Colorado had something to do with it. Up next, Ghislaine Maxwell, found guilty of five of six counts of sex trafficking-related charges last week, though her attorneys have indicated they plan on appealing the convictions. She faces up to 65 years of prison time if the maximum sentences are applied. Maxwell is accused of being part of an international sex trafficking ring, along with her benefactor, recently deceased Jeffrey Epstein, that has allegedly been in business since at least the 90s. The conviction was a result of charges brought on behalf of four women, but there have been reports, and in my opinion fairly credible speculation of a much larger operation involving a number of high-profile individuals and dozens, if not hundreds, of trafficked women. This is another one of those subjects that interests me immensely personally, but there are tons of other shows and reporting out there that have done it way better than I could, so I'm going to defer to those programs. If you have no idea who Jeffrey Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell are, just Google them and be prepared to go down a rabbit hole going back decades and dealing with some of the most powerful and important people in the world. Here's a fun one. The last few years for bankruptcy attorneys have been pretty big with filings surging during 2020 and remaining high in 2021. There's been a lot of work for BK attorneys causing rates to go up accordingly. And a new report from Reuters says that bankruptcy fees at leading firms were getting as high as $1,895 an hour. According to Reuters, in cases where individual debts were at least $1 billion, 
Responding law firms report low-end partner rates of about $640 an hour and high-end partner rates reaching nearly $1,900 an hour. Some associates were billing at over $600 an hour at firms. According to the same report, in the most complex and largest cases, several where the company has been bankrupt for 300 days or more, total fees collected from BK attorneys number $40 million, which is kind of interesting that a bankrupt company is paying $40 million in legal fees. Sneaking in just before the end of the year, a jury verdict against pharmaceutical company Teva Pharmaceuticals in Suffolk and Nassau counties in New York State. The pharma giant, which manufactures all sorts of drugs, but for purposes of this story, manufactures many opioid products, was found liable for creating a public nuisance in Suffolk and Nassau counties on Thursday, December 30th. The jury found that liability would be shared 90-10 between Teva and its entities and New York State. ANDA Incorporated, a distribution company owned by Teva, was also held at fault in the lawsuits of the counties, but not the lawsuit of the state. New York Attorney General Latita James said in a statement, quote, Teva Pharmaceuticals USA and others misled the American people about the true dangers of opioids, which is why in 2019, I made a promise that our team would hold them and the other manufacturers and distributors responsible for the opioid epidemic accountable for the suffering that they have caused, unquote. Apparently, the case had been bifurcated and tried on liability first, with the damages trial set to happen sometime in 2022. From Law 360's reporting on the trial, the state and Long Island counties argued that Teva's downplaying of the risks of opioids led to communities being flooded with prescriptions, while other entities failed to flag suspicious orders. Teva, for its counterclaim against New York State, argued that the state was at fault for not disciplining or stopping irresponsible prescriptions from doctors who are ultimately licensed by the state. The lawsuit was already fairly successful for the plaintiffs prior to trial, with the nation's three largest drug distributors reaching a $1.1 billion deal to exit the case prior to trial, and another pharma company striking a $50 million deal in September during the trial. Other settlements were made to the point where the total settlements prior to trial was about $1.5 billion, with a B. The damages trial against Teva and the remaining other defendant could be significant in a similar suit in California against Johnson & Johnson, among other companies. The state of California asked for $500 billion in damages, though I should note that case was not successful for the plaintiffs but it does give some sense of the size of the ballpark that we are playing in. There are reportedly thousands of cases all over the country right now involving plaintiffs similarly situated to those in the New York case. Nonetheless, this summer, Teva CEO Carr Schultz said he is, quote, optimistic that a nationwide opioid deal could come within a year for his company. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope by the time this airs, we'll have finally gotten our credentials for Apple Podcasts, but we've already been up on Spotify, Google Play, and everywhere else, so I can finally say almost that you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, which is great. Um, if you have any tips or stories you think we ought to be covering in the near future, you'll be able to drop us a line via email or if it's sensitive via signal. And since this is the first episode I am recording after New Year's, I hope all of you have a very happy and safe 2022 and I'll see you next week. 